Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of the Here's the Thing Though podcast. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. And I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. What's up? Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's your week, two weeks been? My two weeks have been good. I feel like they've been more eventful than in previous weeks. Normally I come here, I'm like, it's been two weeks? That's crazy. I've done nothing. But I've, I was pulling up my calendar just now. And it seems that like I have been up to some things. Uh, we went to a, a vegan market at Sydney Olympic Park. Yeah, I love those. On Sunday, we got some yummy food. Expensive, but delicious. But also like kind of standard for a market. I feel like markets are expensive these days. They are just expensive. It's expected. We also went to the Parramatta Lanes market. That thing. was expensive. That was expensive. That was actually obscenely expensive. It was the opposite of the vegan markets because it was like no, no vegan, vegan food. And everything was like $20. Yes. Uh, but I may get more into that later. And I saw some movies at the art gallery. I don't know. Just vibing. Just good week. Yeah, what was the, what was it called? Neptune. We saw two. We saw Neptune Frost, which mm. was this strange Afrofuturist musical about hackers against the neo-colonial state. It was also about Black Queen. It's very. It was that, interesting. That's a, that's a recommendation. I think I liked it. Yeah, liked I'm it. like I liked it, but also I think there are a few things that I was like I don't know about that, but like it was fine. It was. Good. It was interesting. We also saw Friends and Strangers, which was actually a Sydney film. I really enjoyed that. Which was really that. funny. So there you go. But not to get too much into recommendations too early. But yeah, I've been good. How have you been? Yeah, I mean, I did those things with you and I feel like I've just been doing something every day the last two weeks. I've just had so much on. Like this week was a slog. I was. I feel like normally, yeah, time kind of flies and it just didn't. I was too busy and too tired and then I would get home and I'm like, I don't have the emotional or mental capacity to do anything I'm so tired and then I just yeah have like no clean clothes <laughs> but busy is good what do we do aside from what you mentioned we oh yeah we went to the Domino's Times Impossible oh Foods yeah the launch, collab which sounds really also random. A, a vegan type thing yeah well that's kind of why I went and it's interesting because when I go to events like those they're like typically PR events I feel like most of the people there are like other journalists and PR people like I tend to see you know familiar faces of like maybe a news.com writer or like whatever. Like you see other people that you kind of know in the industry. But this one, and I, I mean, this is kind of a growing trend, was like full of really random TikTok people and like a couple mm. of reality TV stars, but not reality TV stars that a lot of people would know. Like Mitch wouldn't have known anybody there. And I knew one. I'm always very clueless. I got to start like networking at these events, <laughs> you know, just I actually I shouldn't. I'm the kind of person I just want my pizza and I can sit yeah, in the corner. I was gonna and say, I'm, happy. I'm really surprised you said that because you're like me. We just like eat our snacks in the corner and go home. We're not yeah. super social. But anyway, let's move into our recommendations for this week. Do you want to start? Sure thing. I wanted to recommend a musician, uh, which I've been really enjoying. And it's the reason I went to Parramatta Lanes, which I mentioned before, like this festivaly thing at Parramatta where I got lots of food and lots of performances. I've been loving- L- Not much food, but lots of performances. But I specifically went with my friends to Parramatta Lanes to see this great Melbourne rapper called Teetha, which I just want to 
spread the love. I just want to share if you're interested in kind of abstract, sometimes abrasive, sometimes chill hip hop. Teether is pretty amazing. I've been very obsessed with his music. Actually, we saw his performance once. It's like a free performance, 40 minutes. And I went again with my friend yes. to catch the next performance, which we got to kind of late. <laughs> so we only saw like 15 minutes of it. But yeah, check him out. I feel like Teether and other people are part of like uh, their small label X amount records. Like they need more attention. I'm just loving what they're doing. And I we met Teether very briefly beforehand, and he's like, "I was so starstruck." It's like, oh my god. Yeah, just- you're a bit in love. Bitch. Yes. <laughs> He's so dreamy. He's so dreamy. (laughs) And he seems like the coolest dude. So go check him out. And maybe completely relative to that left field, I've been reading a bunch of uh, Virginia Woolf the past week. Who knew that her books were so great? Uh, I've read two. Yes, you are the first person to think so. I've read two. I I, I just read Orlando and now I read Flush, which uh, I think her two most accessible books. I'm a bit scared of her more experimental stuff, which seems challenging but rewarding, but I may stay away from those for a few more weeks before I dive in. But yeah, go go read uh, Virginia Woolf. Oh my God. <laughs> it's just- <laughs> Newly discovered so, writer. So mind-blowing. Up but and yeah, coming. That's, that's my brief recommendations for the past fortnight. What about you, Saliha? Um, I only have one, I think. And that is a book that I have been reading that has actually- Killed my slump. I've been in a reading slump. I keep starting books and not finishing them. And I am totally going to finish this one. I'm reading it like every spare chance that I get. And it's called The Whitewash. It's by Siang Lu, who is an Australian writer. It's an Australian book. It's so good. It's essentially a... How would I describe this? It's an oral retelling. But like, obviously, it's written because it's a book. So it was kind. Of, I guess it's kind of like a cross between a script and a novel. It's fictional. Mm. It's a black comedy oral retelling of the whitewashing of the Asian film industry, but it's like a satire. So some of it's fact, some of it's fiction, a lot of it's fiction. The main characters and all that are fictional, but they're used to tell stories that are true. I feel like it sounds a bit random, but it'll make sense when you read it. And it's so funny and like witty and like making all these points Mm. and it's one of those things where you read it and you know it's written by an Aussie because like the humor is very similar which is just nice because I don't read a lot of Australian books so I you know I thought it was very funny I thought it was very clever and I actually like am into it like the plot twists I'm like whoa (laughs) I'm you know I feel like I've been struggling to kind of get into a book and I'm actually going to finish this one I'm nearly done I Uh, was flipping through it it yeah it's like like you said an oral telling but it's like written like an interview or like a dialogue yeah because yeah, which is kind of interesting. it's kind of told by like a fictional very dodgy tabloidy publisher like right like right. a lot worse than daily mail they're called clickbay <laughs> but it's like very funny they're like you know satirical versions of these types of journalists who are like retelling this bombshell event that happened where a asian movie star randomly gets replaced in this huge movie with a white man. It's like this, it's a, it's a whole scandal. Mm. But in telling the scandal, they often contextualize, they have to go back to like other historical events that actually did happen. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of set in the modern world during a fictional event, but it links back to real things that happen. A lot of the context is real. I love that kind of alternative history yeah. stuff playing with form. Actually, the two wolf books that I've read are kind of similar. They're both like fake books biographies like yeah exactly. Uh, so they're playing with like the non-fiction form novelizing it like flush is a, a biography of elizabeth barrett browning's dog 
name flush, which is funny, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and Orlando about a fictitious nobleman from England. Yeah, it honestly is so impressive how seamlessly fiction is blurred into fact. I was like constantly Googling things because I couldn't tell if it was like part of the satire, mm. if it was actually like something that happened. And I was like, this is way too specific and sounds like real. Like there's too much built around this for it to be fake. And then I Google it and it, yeah, it's like just part of the fictional part of the book. And I'm just like, damn, like I'm so impressed. Anyway, that's my glowing review. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I actually was sent that book by a PR person. See, like I don't really get PR packages, but if anybody wants to send me books, if any publishers are listening to this right now, please do. I'll read them. <laughs> but um, yeah. So, same, same, just so you know. Just so you know, if you guys want to you know, add us to your little list. But yeah, so I got sent that by a publisher who was like, hey, I think you would like this. I've read your other articles on whitewashing in media. You should read this book. And I was like, sure, that looks great. And then it ended up being amazing. And I also wanted to mention, this is still part of my same recommendation, is that the author of The Whitewash, along with another man called Jonathan O'Brien, have created this thing called the Beige Index. It's kind of like the Bechdel test, but for race, where basically they watch the top 250 movies on IMDb, which I think, according to their website, was like 22 days and 11 hours worth of movie yeah, watching. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, and then they kind of like place them on like the beige score for like how diverse the credited cast are. Interesting. And I think, so like the lowest rating, aka like white, is called creamy and then it's beige fever and then it's middle beige and it's down to brown and then it's welcome to beige watch. They've got like stats. It's really interesting. You should look at their website, just Google the beige index. But um, oh, I can link it in the sources actually. But um, yeah, 60.8% was the highest score, which is for creamy. (laughs) So yeah, not good. Not very diverse. Who's surprised? But they did that like all on their own. It's like this thing that they did for free that they really care about. And I think that's interesting and wanted to platform it here. So you should check that out as well. Read the book. And check out the page index. Cool. So today's episode is a news roundup, which, as you may recall, we are doing, I was going to say fortnightly, but our episodes are fortnightly. Monthly. monthly. We're doing them monthly. And this week, we've got quite a few. I mean, honestly, there were so many stories. I feel like we struggled to narrow it down a little bit, but we've got three stories that we wanted to talk about. The first one is about a very controversial post slash article that Triple J's The Hookup wrote about sustainability during sex or sustainability in the bedroom, like ways individuals can like lessen their waste in terms of their sexual. Fucking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's the first story. And it was, I mean, you can imagine how well that post went down. The second story we're going to be talking about is about Lydia Thorpe. We're recording this on Friday, the 21st of October. And at the moment, Lydia Thorpe is in the midst of this massive smear campaign slash scandal slash whatever you want to call it after it was revealed that she dated an ex-bikey and did not declare it to the relevant bodies. So there has been much pearl clutching and drama around that. And we're going to get into all the politics around that because it is messy. And then lastly, we are going to talk about Jeffrey Dahmer, but not actually Jeffrey Dahmer, the new Netflix show about Jeffrey Dahmer and just in general, like this resurgence of true crime that's become like even more exploitative than it was. Like it just becomes more exploitative every day. The boundaries between true crime content and like fiction are blurring and it has some pretty concerning consequences. So that will be the final story that we talk about. Let's get into it. Triple J's The Hookup published an article and an Instagram post that listed eco-friendly ways 
to be sexually active. This included a plethora of stuff ranging from vegan condoms to things like turning the lights off during sex, using a towel instead of tissues to clean up, and having shorter showers together. Which, I mean, if you're already rolling your eyes, then same, but it actually gets a lot worse. One of the things the article recommended was for people who menstruate or who can be pregnant to potentially consider copper IUDs as a form of birth control instead of the pill because of the minimal waste. I'm going to read you a section of the article. Apart from condoms, which we've already covered, if we're looking at birth control that produces the most waste, then that would probably be the contraceptive pill. Some people choose to use the intrauterine device IUD as a more eco-friendly alternative. The IUD is a small contraceptive device that is inserted into the uterus. It's 99% effective and can be used for up to 10 years to prevent pregnancy. Some people also report having less or no periods, which also reduces menstruation waste. Mm. (sighs) I mean, this is like kind of fucked up for a few reasons. While I will say the article and the Instagram post both do have a disclaimer that says contraception is a deeply individual choice and people should do like what's right for them and like, you know, discuss it with their doctor. It doesn't really go into the deeply traumatic side effects that can come with an IUD and the way it presents this IUD as this like amazing alternative to the wasteful and harmful pill is a really dangerous and I think irresponsible narrative. People have had fucked experiences with IUDs. Okay, for one thing, they're hard to get, actually. I have a friend who has been trying to get one and doctors won't administer it to her because it doesn't affect your fertility long-term, but there have been studies that show that people who are on the IUD for a long period of time, which is expected if you're getting one inserted into you, like they are a long-term birth control solution in the immediate aftermath of getting one removed like maybe in the first 12 months it's a lot harder to fall pregnant than it is coming off other forms of contraception so some doctors will refuse administering an IUD to somebody who hasn't given birth yet but wants to give birth at some point in life because they don't want it to affect your fertility or make it harder for you to get pregnant so it's already kind of hard to get one but anyway regardless of that Getting an IUD is incredibly invasive and, more importantly, incredibly painful. It, for a lot of people, is traumatic. My colleague Isabella wrote an article about what it was like trying to get hers, which I'll link in our sources. The pain for her was so intense that she vomited and then passed out, and then her blood pressure dropped to such dangerous levels and wouldn't stabilize that she had to be, like, hospitalized. And then her body, like, actively started rejecting the IUD and it was like excruciating and like debilitating and the doctors had to like intervene and remove it. It was- That's horrific. It was horrific, horrible, horrible story, but also like not unique and not uncommon. A lot of people have really traumatic experiences with IUDs. Does this mean they don't work for everyone? No, for some people, they are a great solution. Like lots of people use them and it's fine. Like it is the perfect solution for how they want to use birth control and it works with their lifestyle. So do you want to make it clear that I'm not coming for IUDs and I'm not saying nobody should ever have them, but I am saying that getting an IUD is like something people really have to think about. And there are for a lot of people, quite awful side effects to getting one inserted, even for people that like 
have a successful relationship with their IUD, it's still traumatic getting it inserted. And you can't just like uncritically talk about an IUD and be like, it's great. It's 99% effective. And bonus point, it'll stop you menstruating so you don't have to make waste with your period either. Which is like so fucked to me. Saving the world one pad at a time. Yeah. And I just feel like it's weirdly victim blamey because it's like, Mm. oh, you have a period. Disgusting. Look at the waste that you create by menstruating, which is something your body naturally does. You know what? You should go on this specific form of birth control because it'll stop your period and then you'll stop destroying the planet. Periods already are like incredibly stigmatized as well. And like as somebody who has one, yes, they suck. And like I totally feel with like not wanting to have one. But language around periods and the societal reaction to them is already like really stigmatized in a lot of cultures. Like periods are super impure and disgusting and dirty. And bad for the environment. And now they're bad for the environment too. Yeah. It's like, are you kidding? People should do like whatever form of contraceptive they want because it works for them, not because they have been guilted into it. And it's, you know, especially unfair because as we've talked about a million times in like multiple episodes of this podcast, we are not responsible on an individual level for climate change or for all this waste production. And while if you want to limit your waste, that's great and you do that and I'm proud of you, but like doing that is not going to stop these issues and making people feel like if they care about the climate, they should do this is victim blamey. It's gaslighty. It doesn't place the blame on top of people it should actually place the blame on. And like, no wonder everybody is fucking miserable and anxious and depressed because we constantly feel personally responsible for the fate of the planet. And now we can't even do things like have sex or menstruate without feeling like immense guilt for the waste that we create. And even with periods, I was like, things like diva cups exist. Things like reusable period underwear exist. The IUD is not the only way you can decrease menstrual waste. But even then, like, are we really going to attack people for periods right now? Like, that's what our issue is with waste and climate change. I find this article so fascinating because I feel like it perfectly distills this intersection between all these different issues, like the whole, is it a systemic capitalistic issue or is it an individualistic issue? Like, can we solve it just through personal consumption? And then it also implicitly places a lot of this waste onto specifically like women's issues. Yes, I was just going to say that. And I think it's important. It is really important to be conscious of what waste is. Like, I think we're still so caught up. I know I am. Like, you throw something in the bin and it just disappears from your mind. Like, you just... it. It's like this weird ideological veil. You throw it away and it's like, oh, it's gone. But you don't always consider, even though if you know it intellectually, you don't feel it in your heart that when you throw something out, it's not disappearing from this world. It's going somewhere very specific. But you can both consider that without also placing so much onus. Yeah, responsibility and onus on the individual. I want to hone in on what you said about like women's issues and the idea that it seems, at least I've noticed in recent conversations, that the onus is on women. Like sustainability is like a women's responsibility Mm. as well. I mean, even like with this article, (laughs) it suggests, you know, IUDs as a alternative to the pill, which is considered wasteful, but it doesn't mention vasectomies. And I'm like, you cannot be bringing up IUD, incredibly invasive, traumatic, whatever. And like that actually like to a small degree can affect fertility as like a legitimate option to the pill, but like not bring up vasectomies, which are reversible and also like can affect 
certain fertility. You know what I mean? It's like they're similar issues. Why would you bring up an IUD and not a vasectomy, which is like a no-waste form of birth control? And on top of that, like I did notice that the article also suggests the rhythm method of birth control, which for those of you who don't know what that is, it's essentially when you track your period and then you like have sex on days you aren't ovulating. So you just time the sex you have to make sure it doesn't coincide with like your fertile days, which like is fine. That works for people, whatever. But like that, again, places the onus of birth control onto the person who has a uterus. Yeah. It's still like a women's issue. Obviously, not all women have uteruses and not all people use as women. But from a political perspective, these are like women's issues, quote unquote. Yeah, it, it, for me, it's a women's issue because it's like related to patriarchy. Yeah, exactly. And so it's this idea that like even with the rhythm method, it still requires the person with the uterus to be personally responsible for A, their waste and B, not getting pregnant. And on top of that, in general, I've noticed sustainability always being very skewed toward women and like women consumers as well. Like think about conversations around the fast fashion industry. Yes, yes. And like the type of fashion brands that are at the center of that are always like brands catered to women like Sheen and like Boohoo and like whatever. Like it's and it's women that are like shopping for these brands it's women's clothes it's sustainability is like it's become a bit of a women's issue and it's the same because that's why with things like periods or like menstrual things like you know period undies diva cups whatever like all of these like associated with women products are the ones that like have sustainable options that there's like this green eco-friendly genre of products And it's like, you can see that in the way sex products are marketed. You can see that in the way a lot of products are marketed. Even things like fucking keep cups. Like There's a feminization of the keep cup. Yeah. Yeah, Yassification of the keep cup. But like all kinds of like reusable, I think, items are often marketed to women. I've just, I even noticed that like, because obviously I work in the media and I'm across lots of like brand partnerships and things like that. Like often I'll see them and I'm like, damn, all of these are, catered to women they're marketed to women these are like products that women are buying and it's interesting that sustainability isn't marketed to men uh with the same kind of zealousness as it is to women and i just feel like everything is women's responsibility yeah, no, it's I like think- domestic chores child rearing yeah. cleaning uh babysitting the men in our lives and now like saving the planet is also like kind of a women's issue so yeah i think you're completely right and those two things i wanted to say about that firstly I think women do get all of the blame. I remember when I was just doing like some campaigning on like university, you know, just on campus campaigning, talking to people, walking past about environmental issues. And a common thing that would come up is, well, look at women. If you go to the uh, clothing department store and the men's section is tiny and look at the, the women's sections, there's multiple levels. You go to Myers, like they're just consuming all day long. Like that's something we need yeah. to really be thinking about. So they're both the problem. But then also they're like the solution because they're the ones that are going to consume our way out of this mess. Yeah. Uh, And secondly, when I was reading this article, something that was really an interesting idea that was floating around in my mind was this idea of ecofeminism. I'm not sure if you really come across that. Ecofeminism is about finding an alignment or some crossover between... Uh, environmental issues and like women's issues to say the way that the West has kind of dominated the environment, there is some commonality with the way patriarchy has uh, dominated women. So it, it, yeah. it, it tries yeah. to find There's uh, an overlap. almost like a solidarity between or, or the same kind of ideological impetus that has led to the destruction of the environment mm. is linked to patriarchy. They're not separate issues. 
And I think that's interesting because, firstly, it aligns women with nature. And that has been- I didn't even think of that. Yeah, that has been a continual kind of ideological- position yeah. that has led to women's domination in, in through the eco-feminist lens. But then now this alignment with nature has continued through the sustainability perspective where men are always disconnected from the environment. Like before that was the issue, men are disconnected from the environment and that's how men uh, and patriarchy and patriarchal capitalism can so easily destroy the environment and women and indigenous cultures along the way. And then now that disconnection from the environment gives men another advantage because now they have no stake in sustainability and environmental issues, it still falls upon Women. the woman or the female subject in this capacity. Like I know, you're in a rabbit hole. It is, for real. Yeah, but even just you saying women and women being associated with nature actually reminded me like in the hookup article about eco-friendly sex one of the people interviewed for the story talks about the rhythm method which I just mentioned but like I was looking through Instagram and stuff and the rhythm method at least for her is like you know it's a way to be like more natural like more natural birth control more in touch with my body blah 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 and that also yeah it's so true like the discourse around like women being more in touch with their bodies than men are with their own bodies because Mm. like it's more natural women have this like greater connection with their bodies and the world but also just like this is a slight tangent but just like the idea of like a more natural birth control is really funny to me because isn't like all birth control technically unnatural because it doesn't really exist outside of like this particular species well that's true but i'm also the other way around like it's not that all birth control is unnatural it's that everything is natural yeah, like that's nature, true. That's true. That's something you really uh, like. That that's an important topic when you start looking at you know critical e- ecological discourse. Nature is a fiction. Nature was created by man. There's no such thing as nature. Yeah, we because are nature. Saying oh, there's nature over here is like saying that we're outside of nature. No, the reality is all the landfills, all the waste. That's nature. That's all. Yeah, part we of all the exist ecology. in nature. So yeah, exactly. But just and I completely agree with you. But I mean, for this like yeah, influence, yeah, I so, like you. to her, she like sees it as more natural to do this version of birth control. And I was like, I mean, if we want to talk about like what is natural and unnatural and behavior in like the environment or whatever, it's like other animals aren't using birth control. Like this is, it's fine if it's not natural is my point. (laughs) And like, there's no superiority of like the natural method. Another thing the article also says is that the best decision someone can make to save the planet is to have one less child. And it proceeds to talk about the CO2 emissions of like children, of having a child and like how much of a carbon footprint we would save if we had less children. And I just like, just let out a deep, deep sigh when I read it. Because we've previously talked about the link between like ideas like this. So population control, people should have less children. We should cull certain populations in humanity in order to save the planet. Like those ideas uh not even like you know a long time ago rooted in eugenics they are eugenics they are like rooted in systemic racism in white supremacy and it's all eco-fascism you should listen to our eco-fascism episode because in that we talk about how like telling people to have less kids is racist and fascist uh i'm just i'm not going to bother elaborating it's a a fascist dog whistle um, yeah. and not suggesting that this writer is at all intentionally. Yeah, I'm not even coming for the writer. No, not at all. I, like, a lot of people believe this, but then it's our job to be like, hey, all of these ideas are actually really problematic and you might not see it that, but like, it's important we tackle that. Yes. Not coming for the journalist, not even coming for the hookup, which I actually quite like. 
and I like, you know, I like Triple J, I like ABC. But it's just like, yeah, this particular take was not it. And look, the article does at the end, in the kind of last two paragraphs, it makes a point of being like, you know, it's not people's individual responsibility. We should hold governments and corporations to account, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, but you just wrote a whole article on how it is our responsibility. Mm. And it doesn't undo it to then have one paragraph at the end being like, but you know what? It's actually the government's fault. Like, then don't suggest people get IUDs and not suggest, you know what I mean? It's just, it's messy. Like you made all these points and then you kind of contradicted yourself at the end, but you didn't contradict yourself enough for me to let it go. Like it's still problematic. Exactly. But anyway, the point is the whole thing I think was incredibly sexist. It placed the onus of pretty much all sustainability and sex overlap activities on women and people with uteruses. And yeah, just a pretty obvious, I think, example of, Ideas that already exist. So our next story is about the Greens politician and First Nations woman Lydia Thorpe, who was just made to resign as deputy leader of the Senate because it had been revealed that she had an undisclosed relationship with ex-bikey president Dean Martin. This was particularly controversial as she was seen as having a potential conflict of interest as she was working on the Law Enforcement Committee, which was also dealing with confidential information regarding bikey gangs. After this was disclosed to Adam Bant, the Greens leader, Thorpe's resignation was secured and now there is a great moral panic about the integrity and respectability of the Greens and conservative politicians and conservative media outlets have just been having a complete Field day. This is like the best time of their lives. I was going to say, this is a fucking wet dream for them. I personally think this whole thing is a very conveniently timed racial attack to get Lydia Thorpe out of parliament. I do not care at all about her relationship with Dean Martin, who, by the way, has no criminal convictions as well. Something that is very conveniently left out of like a lot of reports. And I think that's pretty integral information given the way that this has blown up. It implies that like Lydia herself was like some gang leader. Like it's really uh, fear mongery, pearl clutchy kind of stuff. And like in regards to complaints of conflict of interest, I just, I kind of roll my eyes because like, of course, this only comes up when it's a black woman at the center of this conversation because the amount of conflict of interest that all the other politicians also have in other areas of politics, like those don't matter, but this matters. I mean, Christian Porter was literally the subject of like pretty heinous rape allegations where the victim committed suicide and he still served as cabinet minister. Like he did not affect his career. It did not cost his job. Alan Tudge had a relationship with a staffer who he allegedly abused physically and emotionally. And then the government used taxpayer dollars to pay her off $500,000 in damages And that man also kept his job. But Lydia Thorpe was in a consensual relationship with another adult where no abuse occurred. It's a conflict of interest and therefore she has to resign her position. I'm like, the crime here does not fit the punishment, in my opinion, which is like hardly surprising given that everybody has been trying to find dirt on Lydia Thorpe pretty much every day since she entered politics because that is the reality of being a controversial First Nations woman who consistently stands against parliament and calls for like sovereignty and calls for like Aboriginal rights that aren't like virtue signally fun conversations that liberals can just dismiss like she actually is quite a radical figure and she's been on the front lines at protests fighting cops she's a queen 
And I just feel like, yeah, okay, so this issue, like, she should resign. Like, the entire integrity of the party is at stake. What? Have you seen literally all the drama with all the other politicians in every other party? Like, the fact that Christian Porter didn't destroy the integrity of the Liberal Party, like, neither did Alan Tudge. And, like, even, like, Scott Morrison, during his prime ministership, allocated himself, like, five secret portfolios, which is not normal or even i don't think legal and it's just like all of these politicians are doing illegal shit all the time what she did is not illegal and the person she was dating is not a convicted criminal like it's been so blown out of proportion to me and it seems like a very obvious racial attack if we want to talk about conflict of interest what about actual cabinet ministers having relationships romantically sexually with political editors and journalists Like, that's a conflict of interest because then we don't get objective reporting on, like, corrupt politicians. In these situations, like, nobody cares. It's not regulated. There's no complaints, whatever. You know, if we want to talk about conflict of interest, what about our ministers, like, literally having their hands in the pockets of the mining industry? That is a conflict of interest to everybody that gives a fuck about climate change. And half our politicians have stakes in mining. And that's why they actually vote against greater controls of fossil fuels or like wanting to ban more mines or wanting to reduce emissions. Conflict of interest is everywhere in politics because of Australian politics just being, you know, fucked in general. We've got so much like pork barreling and other like legitimately illegal things happening. We're exposing corruption all the time and these people keep their jobs or they leave the parties but then they get really top jobs at like other you know Gladys Berejiklian left on like a corruption notice and then became the head of like Optus you know it's not career defining or even career destroying for every other politician but Lydia Thorpe like oh my god we have to kick her out of the greens because she's ruining our political integrity what political integrity you partake in a white supremacist colonial project none of you have that yeah, it seems that the Greens aren't particularly interested in defending Thorpe and play into the conservative media also attacking her because it's just been snowballing, right? Like, yeah. So she was made to resign as deputy leader of the Senate, but was still involved as like a spokesperson on certain issues within. So still within She's the still party. She's still part of the Greens, but then yeah. like other now it's been like well, even her involvement in the Greens throws the respectability and integrity completely out the window. As like, if like she needs all to be- the other <laughs> fucking sex offenders in like the other parties don't affect the integrity of their parties. Yeah, I think it's just into Price who is just saying any position of hers is is untenable. Like oh then he's. God. Be more just absolute rejection. Just seems surprised. Shut the fuck up, challenge. Honestly, uh, sh- <laughs> it's a total farce. Like it's just racist, and it's particularly convenient as well because Thorpe has been notably kind of critical of the indigenous voice to Parliament, which is yes. not something we've really discussed on the podcast before. Kind of a, a past couple months, I think that's when I began yeah, hearing. Yeah, it's of been it. one of those things where like I've considered talking about it on the podcast, but it's like quite dicey, controversial, so many mixed opinions. And I'm like, you know what? Like we wouldn't do a whole episode on it because it's not our issue. No. But in this context, it's relevant because Lydia Thorpe has actively not supported an Indigenous voice to parliament. And she has been slammed from all sides by that, not just conservatives, but also liberals with lower L, you know, virtue signalers or like center left or just people that want to feel like they actually care about politics. So like, how could she not support this? It's the obvious choice to support it. Yeah. So what uh, Indigenous voice to parliament refers to like an official advisory board that can comment and 
essentially advise the parliament uh, not completely swaying decision but they're just like an informative it's purely advisory we should make that clear so it just seems like a superficial position which the voice for this reason has been favorable to like the liberal party yeah because for them it's like having it's having indigenous representation without it actually having any consequence exactly they don't actually have to listen to this board it's like symbolic it's purely symbolic yeah it seems that they can listen to it when it's convenient when it aligns with what they already want to do and be like oh look we're listening to these parties and Uh, i have seen like some criticism of it like just surrounding the media where it's like we don't know who would make up that board mm. what if it's just a bunch of Jacinta prices like what are right. we going to do what does that mean for like progressive indigenous people so there also has been resistance for a voice to parliament because nobody wants to be represented by like a small group of people is that that's just more bureaucracy yeah and sure. like I've seen criticism from some indigenous people where it's like the last thing we need is more bureaucracy and then just giving a small portion of us advisory powers who we don't know like how that's going to be chosen they're probably just going to be conservative like all the other politicians like Mm. you know it's just like maybe we don't want to be represented by these people and like how can we choose like how democratic is this right that is something we've touched on before like these kind of boards and how they can be like monolithic yeah, uh, they don't represent it's literally how the plurality. Our parliament works right now, like our parliament doesn't represent the it, average Australian. Exactly, like it doesn't acknowledge or even attempt to recognize the plurality of these experiences mm-hmm. of these communities. And like I was saying before, like they can listen to this board when it's convenient and when it already aligns with what they want to do, and then they can also conveniently ignore it. And I think Thorpe's comments, not that she was actively campaigning against it she said that she wouldn't but she has been critical of it and i think her comments have been very astute as to why she finds this problematic when more conservative politicians seem to endorse it and there's a quote from a guardian article centered on thorpe and she said regarding the indigenous voice to parliament quote the parliament is supreme over an indigenous voice and i think that's the crux of it right there we want a treaty so that we can have real power And the article also suggests that her concern is that agreeing to a voice to parliament would also be a ceding of sovereignty because it just is this complete integration with what's already there. Like if you accept a voice to parliament, then you're kind of taking away from the destruction of the parliament, I suppose. Exactly. And I think against it. I think that like is directly linked to the criticism I've seen about just like more bureaucracy and just enshrining indigenous bureaucracy who like we don't know who these people are just into the parliament and it's like no they should be in opposition to parliament because the parliament is like a symbol of colonial terror i agree with you like lydia thorpe's points are so true and she's not trying to be like controversial she's just right she's like yeah like if we have pointing this thing, out the obvious it's just pointing the obvious right but she's like gotten a lot of criticism from all sides about her lack of support and the virtue signalers love to attack people that don't support an Indigenous voice to Parliament because they're like, wow, so you hate Aboriginal people? So you don't think they should have rights or a voice? And it's like, no, it's more complicated than that. And nobody is saying we're going to vote no against one. We're just saying like, yeah, we should probably discuss. There's holes in this plan. And honestly, anything that all the conservative politicians are supporting is something we should be critical of. Like that should be a red flag. Like if all the racists are like, yes, we should have an Indigenous voice to parliament then maybe we should like consider why (laughs) and Mm. what benefit that has to them when we know that they're not progressive about sure aboriginal rights so yeah she's been critical of that and it's very interesting timing that this massive yes smear campaign has happened kind of at the same time as these criticisms it's very strange and i've seen some people make the connection that you know for the past couple months up until you know a few days ago i've seen articles about lydia thorpe specifically regarding the indigenous voice to parliament all over the place and then yesterday which was thursday this whole bombshell 
drops. Yeah, so it just seems that the drama appears to serve a double purpose. It both neutralizes a critic of the conveniently ineffectual voice to parliament while also destabilizing the Greens as a whole. I don't know. It, it's a whole media Man, circus these, out there. these fucking conservatives are too good at what they do. It's terrifying. But there's one more thing I wanted to mention yes. in regards to this, and that is specifically about her relationship with Dean Martin. It's just like the way people are even talking about him and bikies and Lydia Thorpe is so racialized. Mm. Like, it's very, like, angry, scary black people. She met him through her activism around, like, First Nations people and their rights. And there is a long history of bikies and the support for First Nations rights. And there's a lot of, like, First Nation bikies. Like, this is two circles that overlap quite a lot. And a lot of bikies are at protests for First Nations rights and are, like, heavily involved in the activism. And I just find it really interesting how this, like, very colonial, white, pearl-clutching media has demonised all bikies I know this guy was involved with the rebels, which is like considered a criminal organization. But just in general, the word bikey is like such a dirty word, especially when it's associated with First Nations people, which is incredibly racist. Given the colonial project, and I just don't give a fuck about all this organized crime bullshit because you know what is organized crime? Like the police. Hmm. <laughs> like, let's talk about the police and all the people that they have like actually abused and like killed, murdered maimed injured raped sexually assaulted this is an entire like also drug trafficked like the police are fucked like there is so much crime in the policing system and i just find it very interesting that like nobody gives a fuck about that and then we talk about a bikey gang and it's mm. like no stop we literally have police officers like peter dutton who become yep. ministers the outlaw bikey gang known as the australian federal police yeah exactly so i just yeah i got no patience for this pearl clutching shit i'm like if you really care about like conflict of interest and like criminals and all that like there are a lot of other things that you would be concerned about but it's very telling that the only time we're talking about these things is when lydia thorpe is at the center of it And finally, we are going to talk about some certain trends in the true crime. I was going to say community, but I feel like that's not fandom. The the word I was looking for is fandom. The the true crime zeitgeist. Yeah, because community sounds like LGBT community. Like they're Mm. like a minor. No, they're not marginalized. (laughs) Anyway, so by now, most of you are probably across Netflix's Jeffrey Dahmer show, which debuted like I think maybe a couple months ago now. Mm. No, it's not actually a documentary, which is what I thought it was when it came out. It's actually a like drama series based on Jeffrey Dahmer, which fetishizes him and exploits the murders and traumas of his victims and their families. In case you are fortunate enough to not know anything about Jeffrey Dahmer, he was a serial killer, I think between the 70s and 90s was when he operated, who targeted mostly young black gay men. I think he had about 17 victims in total, like 15 of which were black gay men, who he not only murdered, but then often like ate the corpses of and like sometimes had sex with the corpses as well. It's very horrible, as you can imagine. So Jeffrey Dahmer has been a pretty notorious and well-known serial killer for a long time just because his crimes are so incredibly heinous. There's no shortage of articles, you know, like documentaries, YouTube series, whatever, about Jeffrey Dahmer. But this particular Netflix show has been the centre of much controversy and backlash for a few reasons. The first one being that it just kind of came out of nowhere. 
So there wasn't really a lot of promotion prior to the release of the Jeffrey Dahmer show. It wasn't one of those things where they like did a press round with the actors, which is interesting because uh, Evan Peters, the lead of the show, is like famous. Dude's from like American Horror Story. Like everyone knows him. He's quite well loved. So it's like interesting that there was no promo with him. They released the trailer for this show, I think like five days or something before the show dropped. Like very quiet. Like a Beyonce surprise album. Well, quite the opposite, actually, because okay. from what I've read, it looks like Netflix wasn't really promoting it and maybe didn't want oh, they were to. kind of suppressing it. Yeah. Right. So there's a Guardian review, which is really good, and I'm going to mention it a couple more times later. I'll link it in the sources, where the writer suggests that Netflix maybe initially was really keen for it, then it got created, maybe realized it might not get the best reception and like just kind of quietly was going to just drop it into the streaming service and then, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, But it blew up for, I wish, all the wrong reasons, but people actually really loved it as well. So there are like two sides to this story. It got a lot of backlash, first and foremost because of the way it exploited the stories of the victims. So the families who are, you know, alive and well and thriving, the families of the people that were murdered by Jeffrey Dahmer, like did not know that this show existed, were not contacted about it, had no idea that this was going to happen. And then they heard about it when like the trailer dropped and they were like, wait, that's the man that murdered our son. You know, it's just like incredibly fucked. Because all of Jeffrey Dahmer's, like, all the information about him and the crimes and the victims is, like, in the public records, like, Netflix doesn't have to get any rights from the families because it's not, like... No. It's, you know, if it was my life and something happened to me, it was autobiographical, they may have to get rights because it's not something they would, like, be able to just Google. The way it works, kind of, is if things happen, like, you can't own facts. No one can own facts. Like, they could make yeah. a movie about you and the facts of your life. Though, if you wrote a memoir... And they're using information from that memoir and telling the story like you told it, then you have copyright over that. But yeah, exactly. they don't need permission to make a movie about things that actually happened. Exactly. And so they did. They made a show about Jeffrey Dahmer. And yeah, the family members like have been very vocally against it. They have spoken a lot about being effectively re-traumatized by the whole thing because they're essentially reliving what happened to their family members. The show itself is very graphic. Also, like the review described it as like somebody read the Wikipedia page of what he did to these men and then just like made a drama from that. Like it's kind of step-by-step methodologically going through what he's done and it's extremely visceral and like gross and he's also very fetishized Jeffrey Dahmer uh there's like scenes of him shirtless there's obviously scenes of him masturbating and whatnot given like the sexual nature of his crimes but he's played by like someone who's really hot so and who like you know has a thirsty girl fan base as well so naturally he's been incredibly sexualized in pop culture and by true crime fans and by serial killer fans because unfortunately that's a big thing right now I haven't watched it because I refuse to, but there is a scene that the reviewer describes where he like guts a fish, but the reviewer described it as gynecological. I was like, no, (laughs) but yeah, like that's the nature of like, ew, like it's just very ick. And then apparently like after the first five hours of the series, it starts to like be less fetishistic of Jeffrey Dahmer and starts to focus more on his victims but by then it's like too late like this should have been what it was from the if you were gonna make this then from the get-go it should have centered the victims not dharma but it definitely does center dharma but unfortunately this thing popped off like it's i think it smashed all of netflix records it's like the most watched or streamed or whatever show on netflix to be fair 
every show is the most streamed show on Netflix. Mm. It seems like every month they're like, this new release broke records. Like no one's ever, no, like when Squid Game came out, you know, no one's watched yeah, the show Yeah, and Bridgerton and then Stranger Bridgeton. Things. The new Stranger Things season broke Netflix records. This new Dharma show. And they are always Netflix originals too. That's a very interesting point. I do wonder where those numbers come from. It's because they're all bullshit. But anyways. <laughs> uh, okay, well, anyway, back to this story. Yeah, so it's popped off. It's gone viral. People are obsessed. It's created this resurgence of interest in Jeffrey Dahmer, especially by the true crime girlies who are, you know, the bane of my existence. And the bane of these families' existence is too because this renewed interest has also renewed things like merchandise. There's like Jeffrey Dahmer merchandise. This Halloween is coming up and one of the family members of one of the victims that the show spends a lot of time on, the whole episode is about one of the victims, the mother of that victim spoke out publicly and condemned online vendors like eBay for selling Jeffrey Dahmer Halloween costumes, like complete with his like quote-unquote iconic wire-rimmed glasses and stripy shirts and blonde wigs and whatever. And there are like people online like showing their Jeffrey Dahmer cosplays like he isn't a real person that like murdered, ate and sexually abused people like black men's corpses there's just it's so sickening and i just don't understand it like i mean i guess i do understand it because i understand how the media functions and how true crime functions but i'm feeling a real frustration as i think a lot of people are and especially black people are i'm seeing a lot of conversations by black people on twitter who are expressing their frustrations at how easily everybody has treated jeffrey Dahmer as this like hot serial killer problematic but hot who we're gonna dress up as and idolize and fetishize and like i mean all serial killers are fucked but you know like we know the white girlies love their like serial killers but like like, this serial killer specifically killed, like, black gay men. Like, that should make you a little more hesitant <laughs> to, like, mm. idolize him. Like, the racial politics involved in this conversation as well are just, like, completely out the window. They always say they're hot as well. I don't see it. They're like, oh, this serial killer is so hot. That then you look up on Wikipedia yeah, like the photo, and they look stuff. like a fucking ghoul. Yeah, like, what are you talking about? I know. I mean, with all these serial killers, it's not that, like, they're hot. It's that they're white, first of all. Like, mm. it's just being a white man is really, like, hot, especially a problematic white man because then all the girlies have their, like, fantasies about how they would tame said problematic white mm. man, how they would be different, how they would be the one. You know, if we're talking about serial killers, they would be the one to escape. They'd be the one to survive, outsmart, whatever. Like, there's this real... I mean, we've got a whole episode on white women specifically in true crime, Mm -hmm. which you guys should totally listen to because it gets into, like, why white women love true crime and the way they, like, idolize white male murderers. But, yeah, so this, like resurgence of dharma exploitation has been interesting to me for a couple of reasons and the first one is just like how much the lines between true crime and fiction are becoming increasingly blurred every day i honestly just thought the dharma thing was going to be a documentary i was surprised to see it was a drama and it's interesting because people have obviously divorced it from reality because of the way that we're seeing halloween costumes like this is a cartoon villain or like a movie villain when he's a real person that killed real people. Mm. And the fact that people are okay with dressing up as him because they see it, like I've seen it being compared to like, oh, it's fine. Like you guys don't care if we dress up as Hannibal Lecter. I'm like, Hannibal wasn't a real person. His Mm. victims aren't real. It's a story. This is different. You're dressing up as someone that is a real person who caused real trauma to real people who are still alive today and they're watching you trivialize what happened to them and just turn it into a spectacle which yeah i guess goes back to last week's i was just going to bring that up yeah that's exactly what we're seeing uh the line between reality 
and the representation of reality mm-hmm. blurring, as well as the way I want to say capitalism, but it, I think it's maybe slightly more specific. I think it's also American culture. Yeah, the it's very way American. that kind of crisis and tragedy and things which are just irreconcilable, inexplicable become reintegrated and commodified. Like it's it's this awful, strange cycle. This awful event happens. It is so shocking that it somehow becomes neutralized through the commodity form and then re-enters culture as this completely disconnected commodity, alienated from its context, is exactly what Nope's about. So there you go. (laughs) And like this blurred line between fiction and reality, we actually saw happened multiple times in the last couple of months. The other time I noticed this was with Gabby Petito. Do you remember yes, her? Yes, yes. She went missing. I don't even, it wasn't, was it last year or was it early this year? It feels like early this year, but it could I, have been last I, year. I don't, yeah, I don't think, oh, maybe it was a year ago. The point is Gabby Petito was a young woman in her early 20s in America who went on this trip with her boyfriend and did not return, but her boyfriend did. And then through, you know, an investigation, it was revealed that he killed her, he strangled her, and then came back. And then when the whole world became obsessed with Gabby Petito and wanted to find her before we knew she was deceased, like, he knew he was fucked. And after confessing in a journal that he murdered her, he then committed suicide. It was like this whole thing spanned about a month from the day she went missing to the day he committed suicide. And it was all over the world. Like, it was covered worldwide. People were really invested. I wrote articles about it. Like, it was a really big deal. But I don't know if you know this. Within weeks of that, Lifetime actually secured rights to a movie about her. Yeah. And that's actually been released already. Oh, really? Yeah, it came out a few weeks ago. Well, I think the way people were invested in the Petito event was like watching a real time true crime. Yeah, everybody was sleuthing. Everybody online, like, could. It was like very. You know how people say, like, armchair psychologist with reality TV? Mm. It was like armchair detective with this real life story with a real woman that was missing, but everybody got to play a game of Cluedo, right? And be involved. And Lifetime like saw this interest and decided that they were going to secure the rights to make a movie, which is incredibly scummy. She literally like is still fresh in her grave and you have just secured the rights to like commodify her death. I mean, there's a whole nother conversation to be said about just how much we love to create spectacles of women suffering, first of all. Yeah. But, you know, that's another conversation. But like, yeah, so they did that. The movie came out a few weeks ago. I think it's literally called like the story of Gabby Petito. It's like some boring and uncreative name. And it's literally marketed as like a tragic love story, which is so problematic because it's not a love story. He murdered her. It's obviously not love. And I'm really sick of like domestic violence and men murdering women always being like enveloped in the story of like tragic love, crime of passion. He just loved her so much that he killed her. And it's like, that's no. So problematic in many ways. It came out, apparently it was really, really bad, unsurprisingly. But yeah, it's just like another example like of lately where like how quick these companies are to like make these documentaries and stories and movies about like real life murders that people are still recovering from. Mm. Like it's so exploitative, but also it's like there's no separation anymore between like the representation of the real, I guess is what you said, where like the representation being the show and the real, they're the same thing now. Everything is the representation and we can make the representation from anything. Everything is entertainment at all times. Everything is being consumed. Mm. And if we can make something of this, we like should, you know, with Gabby. And I think it's creating a lot of interesting questions about, like, victims' rights. 
because the family of Gabby Petito like you know slammed the movie and were horrified that it was happening and were very upset because they were like nobody asked us for our permission this is our story of grief this is our story of loss and it's not fair that you guys can just make a fucking movie and make money off this like you are making money off like this person's death and the people who are suffering are not seeing any of that money the same thing was said by the families of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims as well, like the mother that I quoted earlier. She also said that part of the reason it was so upsetting, aside from all the other obviously traumatic stuff around the Netflix drama, was also that like just seeing how much money Netflix is making and she's not seeing a dollar of it. And that's like her son's murder. That's what's making these people money. And then just recently, so this is related, I promise, but two weeks ago, Kim Kardashian launched her own true crime podcast, Uh, Didn't expect her to arise in this conversation. Yeah, well, you'd think so, but she is kind of into true crime, not in the murder sense necessarily, but uh, if you guys know much about Kim Kardashian, she wants to be an attorney and she's like been studying law for a few years now. And she's like, she was involved when Trump was president. She was campaigning for the exoneration of certain like black people in jail on like death row. So she's actually Mm. like, it's interesting. Like true, true crime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she wasn't like, fix- she was actually like in the moment, yeah, real people yeah, yeah. who she was like talking to. Not that I think Kim K is a great person, but I just, for context. But yeah, so she has now ventured into true crime podcasts and she has one called The System, The Case of Kevin Keith, who is a black American man who has been imprisoned for almost 30 years now for the triple homicide of three people in a shooting in 1994. And there were two survivors of that shooting children who were four and six years old and the reason he was convicted of this crime there was no physical quote-unquote evidence tying it to him so there's no like dna or anything like that he has alibis for being at a different home when this shooting took place but the two children who survived that shooting they one of them got shot in the stomach i believe they identified him like eyewitness identified him and then he was convicted and so kim's podcast delves into the conviction well she believes wrongful conviction of kevin keith and it's really interesting because there's actually been a long campaign for many years to exonerate him and he's maintained his innocence for many years it's like a whole project there's a whole website about him because there's no physical evidence tying him to the crime and he didn't actually get a fair trial so that's like interesting maybe a noble cause but the day her first episode dropped those two children are now in their 30s And they gave an interview to the Daily Mail, slamming Kim, slamming the podcast. They were angry because they claimed that they were never approached by Kim's team or involved in any way, which Kim's team denies. They say that they like did reach out to the siblings who weren't interested at the time. So they were like, okay, and then whatever, which I mean, it doesn't matter. It's a he said, she said situation, but that's not even really the relevant part. They also slam Kim for like talking about a story that's not hers. And they believe that unless they are being centered and their voice is being centered in this conversation as victims of this crime, then like it shouldn't be being talked about. And they are slamming Kim for like making money. Obviously, she's got a Spotify partnership and she is making money from this podcast uh, over this story. And I think this and the Gabby Petito thing and the Jeffrey Dahmer thing also like create an interesting conversation about if victims own their stories because there is so much trauma involved you know it's a bit different to like making a movie about like a celebrity scandal like these are people who are like severely traumatized who like have lost loved ones to these crimes who have to deal with that every day 
and then some random rich executive or influencer or, you know, like Kim Kardashian type of the world can just decide to take an interest in what happened to them and make money from it and owe them nothing. Which is like, yeah, an interesting conversation because like, I guess, does anyone own this story? Does anyone have a right to profits off this story? And like, we, I mean, we can all agree it's exploitative to make this media, but like if money is being made, where should it go? Like there's a lot of ethical issues I see arising from it. I have a question because I don't yes. know much about this Kim K drama. Mm. Does it seem that she is legitimately interested in reevaluating this case? Is there that kind of slant? Yes. No, it's about exonerating him. Like it's right. about interrogating all the evidence against him and yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of debunking it. Like it, it doesn't say wrongful conviction in the blurb, but like, yeah, she says in her trailer for it that she's shocked that like he was locked up on such like minimal grounds and yeah. Like, she wants to investigate his innocence and stuff. So, yes. It, that like, is interesting. It's from the angle of potentially exonerating Because, yes, it is problematic, but it's interesting because I think, like, one of the first true crime films before, you know, true crime was an established genre was, like, The Thin Blue Line in 1988, which was about, you know, uh, a contested, controversial case. And after the film, there was a big aftermath of the investigation was reopened after that film. And then in the podcast realm, uh, Serial, yes, you know, like exactly. a decade ago- that was about it was like connected to the world in some capacity. They were yes. saying there was a, something that went wrong. There is awful outcomes that need to be reconsidered and reevaluated. Well, these podcasts are grounded in reality. They're grounded in reality, and then now they took that form, and now it's about looking at uh, cases which are ambiguous. But that's almost what's exciting about them. It's not actually about you know changing public perception on a given event but it's about oh the person could still be out there because it's like a horror story yeah so at least with this kim k thing there is some connection to reality exactly i'm less critical of her podcast and these other things and podcasts in general unless they're just retellings of gruesome true crime things and i think it's still like exploitative Mm. but podcasts where they actually like are investigated they're investigative essentially like her podcast specifically, like, has a lot of criticisms on the way the cops handled the situation. Well, Kim K said ACAB when. But, yeah, like, it's <laughs> about, like, the flaws. In, it's literally called The System because yeah. it's about uh, the sure, way the right. system fucked him over. And, you know, like, with Serial as well, like, that's a good example of, like, hey, these things don't add up and we are going to interrogate the law enforcement or the legal system in how it was unjust. Those are good because I don't think they're exploitative. And that's where true crime They're actually started. doing something. And yeah. exactly, that is what true crime should be. But it's, like, moved and it's, you know, mutated it's and It's no morphed. longer an intervention. No, like now it's just, like... Spectacle folding in on itself. It's consuming, like, gore and, like, mm. awful things, right? Like, it's just blatant, disgusting spectacle. You just want to look at something and be horrified and it ends there. It actually isn't... It doesn't help anyone anymore. Mm. But to be fair, serial killers are a uniquely American phenomenon, it seems. Well, actually... Is that not true? Okay, they... It's no. reflective of American culture and then also this commodification of so serial killers statistically... Quite American. Yeah, like, in, they're an American thing statistically in the sense that America has way more serial killers than anywhere in the world. But there are other countries that have serial killers, including here with, like, Ivan Milat. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, like, statistically, America is where all the serial killers are. <laughs> and also this fascination with serial killers. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I only... The fascination, I would agree, is very American. There is also fascination in Australia with some of our serial killers, undoubtedly. But America is pop culture. Yeah. Pop culture is American. Pop culture in every other country, 
I think has its roots in America. Well, that may say, be controversial, but that's like what I'm sure. People of. who love serial killers here, like love serial killers because they've watched that happen in America. Yeah. Like it's just because American culture is bleeding into Australian culture. But yeah, so like with this whole Jeffrey Dahmer and other true crime situations, I am very concerned about the way we can no longer differentiate true crime from just crime fiction. Like Jeffrey Dahmer is like technically in a lot of ways, like just a fictional drama, but it's based in true crime, but it's not just based on true crime. It is true crime because all of this is real. And this blurring of lines between the two genres, I find very concerning, especially at a time where it's so easy to just make a show about someone that just died. Obviously, Jeffrey Dahmer was a while ago, but with Gabby Petito, you know, it's just like, it's concerning. I'm like worried about the direction in which this is going. And I think there is like room for conversation around victims' rights, whether they should A, be compensated at the very least, or B, whether they should just be able to be like, say the fuck away from my son's murder story. Like, it's messy. Cool. Well, now's a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you, our lovely lovely listeners. And specifically, we'd like to thank Johnny and Pia. So thank you so much for supporting. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha as a one-off to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Official. And give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film books and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or Mitch or email us at podcast at gmail.com. And if you do email us, please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. Cool. Thanks. Bye. Bye.